Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray. And before we get to today's guest, let's talk about what happened at Wimbledon. What a historic run by Chris Eubanks, a player that 18 months ago wasn't even sure how much longer he'd stay on tour. Started commentating, started doing other things, and I honestly think commentating, talking about the game, having to sit in that small room with the big TV and stare at the game uh, really helped his development, helped his maturity, helped him sort of see the game through a different lens and learn the players. And I think that paid off for him here at Wimbledon. So we want to wish a big congrats to Big Banks, Chris Eubanks. On the women's side, we saw early departures from some of the players that we had high hopes for. Uh, and we saw Marquita Vondrosova. You know, she had tough two years in and out of competition, battling injuries, and she held the throne. And we want to congratulate her on her title. Ange Jabour, very emotional at the end of the women's final. 0 for 3 now in grandstand finals. But listen, when you look at people like Caroline Wozniacki, Simona Halla, all of them, I think, lost their first grand, the first three grandstand titles before they won their one. So consistency pays off in this sport and you gotta keep trying. Our first guest today is Ethan Quinn. Ethan Quinn is the reigning NCAA champion from the University of Georgia. Recently decided to turn pro, gonna get the wild card to the US Open. Had a chance to sit down and talk to this very mature 19 year old. Talk about his upbringing and how he views himself as a personal brand and how he got to this point. Take a listen. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with the reigning NCAA singles champ, Georgia Bulldog, Fresno native, Ethan Quinn. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So I'm always curious about how people get into tennis because, you know, you got good height on you. And in America, if you're over six feet, you're playing basketball first. So how'd you get into tennis? Um, honestly, my, my family, we grew up, I mean, I grew up about five minutes from a tennis club. Um, I would always go and watch my mom play tennis through her years. She played until college. Um, so whenever she was playing at the club, I would just want to tag along and stay with her. Um, so I would sit on the bench and watch her play some four or five women's doubles. Um, but I was just eager to, to be out there. And then eventually they, they got me started. Um, my dad, he's six, six. So he wanted me to, he wanted me to be in baseball or basketball or any of those traditional sports. Um, which I never actually even played a baseball game. I played basketball to eighth grade, but once I got to probably about seventh grade, I was really into tennis. I was wanting to play every single day, um, be out there four hours a day. Even in Fresno, it's 110 degrees in the summer, and I was just wanting to be out there. Um, I was one of the only guys on the court some of the days, but I was just wanting to play as much tennis as possible, and I think that's where my love started for it. So having a tennis a parent that plays tennis is dangerous because they always start out trying to teach you first. Right. And then at some point, 
they start like starving you. Like I know I was like my kids now are six and eight. So when they don't do well at a camp, I'm like, yeah, no ice cream tonight. You know what I mean? <laughs> so did your mom ever try to coach you or for how long? You know, she she never tried to coach me. Um, she would always be the person traveling with me. I never really had a coach traveling with me. Probably not until I was about, probably not even until college. I didn't have a coach travel with me really um, until college. And then, but she would stay, she would stay right in the back fence and she would always be on the fence. And from, <laughs> from when I think I was 12 years old, I told her, I'm like, mom, get off the fence. <laughs> you can say out, listen to anything you say, but if you sit on the court, I'm just gonna, I'm not going to, I'm going to ignore you and I'm going to be angry at you. And that's kind of where our relationship started. We had a really good routine off the court. And then kind of once we were able to have those discussions, um, we had a lot of drives going to Stockton for some L2 nationals. Um, so once I was able to kind of tell her that and have that full conversation, I think that's probably where my tennis excelled and where our relationship continued to grow, where I wasn't just constantly being mean to her. <laughs> so I think that's where it helped us. Now, you know, the worst thing about having a parent drive you to a tournament is if you have a bad loss and you got to drive home with them. Tell me about a time where, number one, mid-match, your mom just leaves the court and goes and waits in the car. And, and two, a time where you're at a tournament and you're like, geez, I'm not looking forward to this car ride. You know, there wasn't a car ride that really sticks out to me. Um, there was plenty of times where we would hear stories from like the club I was at where one of the other guys, his dad would make him get out of the car and run for five miles <laughs> and she would stay and drive with him. And there was a couple of times my mom said, you know, I was thinking about doing that to you. And it never got to that point. But I remember actually Kalamazoo, um, my first year of 18s, I lost a match and it was, it was, it's vivid in my memory. It was thunderstorms outside and I was inside the house, just like in our Airbnb. And we were like just yelling at each other. And then she was just like, you're quitting tennis. You're done. Like we're, <laughs> we're done. This is horrible. Everything's done. We're done with tennis. And I think from that, that was one of the moments where I was like, oh man, she's, she's scary. And she is mad right now. <laughs> there was not another word said the rest of the night. Lot just, you could hear the thunder and lightning. And it was, it was a scary situation. I played consolation and then actually final doubles. So it ended up being a good tournament, but it was a really scary moment. And don't you love that? Where you, you'd be at a junior slam, where you'd be at Kalamazoo with like the best 128 kids in the world. <laughs> and you know what? We should just quit because today was a bad day. We should just throw, <laughs> yeah. throw the whole baby out with the bath water because exactly. today was a bad day, even though I'm one of the best 100 kids in the world. Exactly. Like, let's, let's start over. So obviously you talk about Kalamazoo, you talk about playing junior slams. What made you decide to go to college, right? Because now, you know, kids are like that summer between senior year and freshman in college. You're like, eh, should I try? Could I go? Can I get a deal? Can I travel? What made you choose to go to college? You know, I always, I always wanted to go to college. There was never really the thought process of me playing and going pro early. Um, I always wanted to, to be at, the, at a university playing with the team. Um, I've always been a team player I felt like I played um, spring team championships intersectionals all those team events uh, zonals everything like that I played and I really enjoyed it I felt like I excelled a lot at that level and then I was always had my mindset playing college getting a degree um, my, my mom really wanted me to get a degree as well um, so I kind of always had the plan of going to college and even staying for four years and never really thought of leaving early or anything like that so you chose UGA who was the second option? I'm always interested in seeing how where people go and what the backup plan was or what, or what the second school was. You know, it's, it's a hard question. Um, definitely between Florida and Texas. Um, Florida, I felt like, I, I'm not going to say it first, but I felt like Ben was going to be 
too good. Right. Uh, I, I had this feeling. I remember telling my coach, Brad Stein, that I was like, I don't think Ben's going to be there for a full year. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's the guy that like, it's going to help me transition and get a lot better. Like a lot of the seniors, when I went on my visit, we're going to be leaving the next year, like Sam Riffis, Andrade, Duarte, they're all going to be leaving. So it's going to be a whole new team. And I felt like, I was like, man, Ben, Ben's going to be able to leave the next year as well. Um, so they were probably my second option It really, I really was looking at them, especially Brian Shelton. I have, have so much respect for him. He's such a great coach, great, great person, mm-hmm. um, wanted to go there. But in the end, UGA just had that feeling of home. Um, Manny really reminded me of Brad almost to just have that kind of swag, um, when it comes to being a college coach and just being a coach in general. Um, and then the actual school itself, it had everything I was looking for, a great sports program, great academics. And then just the city overall, it was really, really reminded me of Fresno, honestly, just the neighborhood mm. of where I lived in the neighborhoods kind of right around, uh, Athens, Georgia, like five points just really made me feel like home. So I actually interviewed Manny about a month ago on the podcast. And one of the stories he was like, yeah, you know, Ethan came second semester and redshirted. And I was like, you redshirted the eventual national champion. What were you thinking? Right. So tell me about how you go to UGA. Clearly could have played. Right. But you decided to spend a semester in redshirt. Tell me about that decision. You know, I, it's funny looking back. Um, me and Brad were talking a little bit and we we're just like, gosh, I think the only regret we have with the college, what we've done was redshirting that first year. Um, but the actual decision was I lost orange ball. I was up five, one in the third set in the first round and lost the match. And I told Jamie, I'm like, Jamie, is there a spot for me? Can I come early? Like, I'm just not, I don't have what I'm getting. I don't have what I need at home. And I think if I come to school, I'm going to be able to do really well. Um, but honestly going into school, I had the lack of confidence that I would even play in the lineup. I was looking at the lineup and I was like, where am I even going to play? Like, I don't think I'm that great of an asset to the team. Like I'm, I'm a great supporter. Um, but I don't think I'm going to be able to come in and do well for the team. And so that kind of halted me even wanting to come in. I was playing futures and losing first round of, I think I lost three first rounds in a row. Um, so I was really like, that kind of gave me that perspective. I was like, all right, I'm not able to even play at the future level. Like, let me just get another year of practicing. And then I think after two or three months, I went back home to California and played my first, like a future in Bakersfield, California. And I ended up making the semis after qualifying in. I beat four guys within inside the top, I want to say 400. And then ended up playing Rinky Hijikata, who's now 110 or something like that. And I served for the match. And I think that moment kind of gave me that realization that I could actually play. Um, and then the following month, I went to Vero Beach and I finaled a 15K there. And I went to Manny right before ICCs. I was like, Manny, like, sh- can I play? Like, I, I kind of want to play. Like, I'm looking like it's our team. Like, I feel like I'm ready to be able to play and provide like a chance for us to win an NCAA. And they were kind of like hesitant a little bit as well. <laughs> just like, I don't know, like we could get you when you're a senior rather than just turn, you just turned 18, like 10 days ago. Like there's, I don't, I don't know. Like there was just a little bit of hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up deciding that, you know what? No, like I'm not, I won't be able to qualify for the tournament. I think it'll be best if, if we just wait until the fall to start your freshman year. And I think that, I mean, there's the whole decision. Mm. Um, so you mentioned Manny, you mentioned Brad Stein. Um, you know, I coached, you know, several pro players. And, like, the relationship is always very interesting. You know, I've been told several times, be quiet. You're talking too much. Go stand in the corner, right? Or I've been told, you know, uh, say something. And I say, just put the ball in the box, right? And they be like, is that all you got? <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So tell me, the, uh, in college, you have on-court coaching, 
right? And for like a young player like you, it's a major benefit because you actually get to learn like in the moment, in the middle of the match, where on the women's tour you could do it. But now, you know, now the men's tour is progressing, but the men never were able to have conversations with the coaches mid-match. Tell me the best and worst advice you were given mid-match and on-court coaching. You know, I think the worst, um, this is kind of me and Jamie actually have a team, not team, but like kind of a joke about it. <laughs> um, Manny is classic for saying, work it out. And it's just like, you kind of sit there and you're wondering, what does that even mean? <laughs> and you're just like hitting balls. You miss a shot, work it out. And it's like, what am I trying to work out? <laughs> like, so I think that might be the worst that I've received. Me and me and Jamie kind of joke about it. We, me and him, whenever we're on a team trip, I would sit in the shotgun and we would just kind of talk about it. Um, and then I think the best I received was, I mean, am I allowed to cuss yeah. here? Okay. Yeah. Um, when I played at the U S open last year against Del bonus, Brad was on the sideline and he had said to me like our entire game plan was like, all right, you got to spread the court, use angles, make him move. And I get down a break and Brad like yells across the court. He's like, Ethan hit your forehand. And from that point on, I break held break held and was able to win the first set. And I just think kind of playing my own game was like, all right, that's all you need to do. You have a big forehand, just Mm. use the forehand. Why are you trying to play to this guy's weaknesses? Just play to your own strengths. And I think that was something that helped me so much. Mm. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So you win NCAAs, you decide to turn pro. What was that decision? Because, you know, we see NCAA champions, they say, ah, I'm going to come back for another year. Uh, with NIL out there now and different opportunities, what was this decision? Like, you know, normally I, I always say in this sport, um, industry tells you when you can make it, right? So Ben Shelton came here. You know, Chicago's like the good luck charm for tennis players. I don't know if you know that. It's good enough. Emirata Kanu got to the finals of our once, we gave her a wild card, got to the finals 125, and she wins U.S. Open. Literally, right? All the way from Qualies. Ben Sheldon gets to the final here, goes to Cincy, beats Cathrew, turns pro, night three in a row. So this is like good luck charm. So you, you're in holy grail right here. So what was the decision to go pro? Because it's not just automatic. Oh, I want to see the Blazers. I'm going pro. That's not how it works in tennis. Yeah, you know, after winning NCAAs, I didn't really have much time to think right away. I mean, I was hurried to the, to the plane, leaving Orlando. I finished my match, and in two hours, I was like, all right, I got to get my flight. So I was kind of able to silence everything that was going on in the world and just kind of enjoy that moment. Um, but once, once I got back to Athens, I was there for about a week or so, me and Brad were able to hop on a big, on a phone call. And he kind of told me just where, where the market was at on my brand. Um, I'd like to say EQ is a brand now. Mm. Um, EQ, I like that. (laughs) Um, and 
he kind of told me on the market um, where where I could be, and then also just on a realistic perspective uh, of just where where my game could go within the next six to twelve months, and how if I was at college, the pos there was possibly to be a little bit more limitation, a little bit more distractions, obviously. And he felt like for me to develop and do what I want to do and become a professional tennis player, that going pro would be that best option. Um, it was a really hard phone call when I ended up having to call Manny and Jamie. Um, cause I never, I never really had the intention. Once I got to school, I was like, all right, I'm going to finish my degree. And from there I'm going to be able to do what I want. Um, but I realized that say I don't win NCAAs next year. It's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, recognition right now, but if I don't do what I'm supposed to do next year, then it kind of all collapses. And I felt like, all right, this will be the best for me, my brand, where I want to be. Um, obviously I wanted to win a team championship. Um, and unfortunately that's going to be, I'm gonna have to let go of that, that hope and dream. Mm. Um, but I'm getting to do what I want to do. And I think that's, that's the best thing I could, can look forward to. And then I'm still taking classes at UGA, um, doing online alternatives just so I can get that degree and be able to do kind of finish out the college that I wanted to, to finish and what I had the intentions of doing. Well, congratulations. Uh, I just had the opportunity to watch you play. Got that big forehand. Keep <laughs> looking for it. Uh, keep going and stay focused. Thank you for joining us on the show, man, and good luck in your career. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Our next guest is a veteran on the ATP Tour. He's been in the top 50, Marichinko. He is a somebody we always see in every draw on the Challenger Tour, battled through injuries, even started his own YouTube station during COVID. Uh, he's somebody that a lot of people on the Challenger Tour look up to. Great personality, very witty, funny. Got great wins over the likes of Nick Kyrgios, uh, Medvedev, and others. So he knows what it's like to play at the top. And he shares some great insight about what it's like, what came together in those weeks when he won his challenges, what it's like to play against some of those top players. And now being back on the challenging tour, having to look at those guys uh, on, the AT on the main tour at the Grand Slams. Take a listen. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with the veteran former top 50 player, winner of eight ATP Challenger Tour titles, career wins over people like Nick Kyrgios, David Ferrer, uh, a veteran on the tour, Ilya Marchenko. Ilya, nice to th thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thank you for wanting. So you're a man of many talents, but your first talent obviously is being a professional tennis player. How did you get into the sport? Because when you think, you know, when I look at the tennis world, there's so many people who were, oh, my dad was this or I grew up across the street from this, or my mom was Tracy Austin, like Brandon Holt, right? So many people who just have tennis lineage. Do you have the same story? Well, no, not really. My parents have uh, nothing to do with sports, but my brother used to be a figure st skater. Uh, he used to compete <clears throat> at Olympic Games in Nagano. So, like, we have some sports uh, background, but uh, he stopped his career pretty early, so uh, I don't really remember the grind <laughs> to be honest and yeah and my mother chose chose to, uh, the path for him like the sport for him figure skating and my, then it was a turn of my father and he liked tennis so he started to play with me uh, we started the same day not the same day but like same time mm -hmm. 
and yeah just uh the game inspired me i i like to run i like to do all these shots and uh fighting and everything and yeah just uh beautiful beautiful game to play so you learned to play with your father then and it became like a father-son kind of thing that kind of made it interesting early i mean i was obviously uh, training with other kids as well but yeah. uh, he spent uh, a lot of uh, time on court with me and uh, we were competing we were like playing sets uh, trying to win uh, he was pissing me off you know right. irritating <laughs> you know using all these tricks and uh, <laughs> making you mentally tough they yeah, call making, that making you mentally tough yeah ma ma making me mentally tough and uh yeah, at some spot he stopped uh, his progression and I continued. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're old man, you know, you peak early. Right? Yeah. You, get, you get really good early and then you like, you get stuck. Uh, he still he still says that uh, the last match we played that he, he won it. Right. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I don't remember it. I, I doubt it's true, but uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, so how did you go pro? Because, you know, it is really hard to know what steps to take, what academies to go to if you don't have a parent that did it before. Well, uh, for me, it was extra hard. We didn't have uh, that much money in our family. It's uh, I'm from a small city in Ukraine, obviously, and Ukraine is not really a rich country. And uh, uh, we had no finances for me to travel and uh, compete. I, I didn't play many junior tournaments. Mm. I played like five in one year. So all, almost all in Ukraine. One was like in Moldova, next next country. And yeah, I was just blindly believing that uh, one day I can become a pro and uh, uh, I get help uh, from uh, coaches from uh, like one guy was paying for my uh, trainings and uh, when I was 18 I got uh, an offer to go to Donetsk uh, to Vicart uh, Tennis Club and uh, since then basically I became a professional tennis player because I started to like playing like 20 plus tournaments a year and uh, yeah, that was uh, a big, big change for me and uh, a big, a big, uh, big chance. Now, I think like one of the things that's different between the U.S. and overseas is that there's a lot of small challengers, 15Ks, 25Ks in like small countries where you can train, right? And you can bust. But in the U.S., you got to fly everywhere. It's not that many tournaments. So is that, did that help being European playing the challenger tour? I mean, Ukraine, not really that close to, I had to fly everywhere. And even when I was in Donetsk, for me, it was the normal thing. I would have to take two flights to get anywhere. It was either through Moscow or through Kiev. Mm. So never direct flights. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was comparing to what I have now. I live in Bratislava. I fly from Vienna everywhere or drive. It's uh, so much easier. But back then, it was uh, traveling was not the best. And uh, we didn't have that many tournaments around. I mean, yeah, we had uh, like a couple of futures. So that's where I got uh, my first points. Mm -hmm. That's why I got this offer to go to the NASC in the first place. Uh, but it was like three in a year. And then we had three challengers as well. Mm. I mean, it's much better than it is now, obviously. Not now, because now it is war in our country but like we didn't have a challenger for a long period of time mm -hmm. and obviously it doesn't help for local players because I, I remember we had a lot of good guys but they <clears throat> had to stop at some point because uh, they had no money to travel mm -hmm. they had no uh, like finances to to continue their 
their careers. Uh, some went to US uh, and some just started to coach. That, that's that's about it. So everyone that plays Nick Kyrgios remembers the match because every match is exciting and he always does something. He just can't help himself. Is there anything memorable about the time when you beat Nick Kyrgios? I think during our match he made the best shot of his career. Really? That's my opinion, obviously. What was it? But uh, uh, he made a drop shot. I reached it, made uh, a drop shot back, and then he ran full speed. I'm almost at the net. He runs full speed, dives, and make a drop shot while diving. <laughs> and I'm staying at the net, and I cannot reach it. <laughs> I mean, it was on Instagram a couple of times, but I mean, for me, I haven't seen anything like this. Yeah. I mean, diving. And it was break point or something. He saved it. But since that point, our game uh, turned around because he was leading. He was set, set up. And I eventually broke that game. So I don't know if the dive actually helped him. me. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, yeah, he, he pulled out. He withdrew. I don't know if something happened. I don't think it happened during that dive, but I mean, he had some hip issues. Uh, mm -hmm. It's really hard, hard to tell. But he was, yeah, I, I was diving drop shot on hardcore with full sprint. Uh, it's uh, not it's, smart. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I mean, great shot. <laughs> <laughs> but you got the win. So, one of your other talents is you started a YouTube channel. Well, it's, it's actually really interesting uh, <laughs> because I think that. You know, there's multiple tours, and there's like people obviously identify the, the big tournaments, right? You got the Premier Five, you got the Slams, but there's so many stops in small countries, and your YouTube channel kind of like highlights that. How'd you, why'd you get the idea to do it? It was COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's, you were bored. it's an obvious answer. Yeah, I was bored. Yeah. <laughs> I made one, uh, one video, uh, I don't remember something with uh, games and. Uh, uh, people liked it, and uh, I started to learn how to edit videos because I had no idea. So I started like learning and uh, trying to do these uh, videos, and uh, yeah, then uh, eventually, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I had like, well, at the end, I was almost 5,000 subscribers, I, not even one bot subscriber, so I'm pretty proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I had to stop like uh, starting of this year. But uh, I, I'm not saying that it's over. So I might come back when I'm. Uh, when get I bored again. My, you know, when I finish my career, when <laughs> I have a bit more time, because now it's a bit, uh, a bit tough. So you turned pro in 2005, 18 years on tour, a veteran, uh, and now you see the tour changing, right? Lots of young guys coming through. Um, what would be your advice to the young guys, right? Because this generation, to me. If they don't make it in the first year or two, then they're like done, right? They go get a job. I don't know if they have the stamina to not to not have instant success and keep going. Uh, but you're out here, right? Top 50 in the world. What what would be your advice to guys starting out? Keep the grind. I mean, the the field is very <clears throat> very even right now. I think it's more even than it used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody can uh, hit a ball, and only tough guys are staying that's uh, so they need to be tough that's the main thing for the young guys they have shots they have everything they have uh, physics and everything yeah, they just need to be tough that's that's about it so now you're starting to dive into coaching 
Yeah, a little bit. You know, and tell me about your experience that, right? Because, it, A, it's hard being a player. You know, at, at your level and coaching, like, I mean, come on, it's so easy. Just do it. You know, just make 10 in a row. Come on, just easy, right? Uh, but then now you're coaching players and they say, hey, just sit back there and pick up the ball. Just be quiet. Tell me about your coaching experience so far. Well, it's uh, obviously it's very different, different story. I mean, physically wise, it's much, much easier. <laughs> I, have to, I have to tell you. And uh, yeah, but it's uh, different. Obviously, I know something about the game and I can uh, share a thing or two. And it's good that I'm actually working with a guy who's 18, who is like an adult player almost. Uh, because I think it would be much more difficult to, to work with kids because I have no idea. I don't have a patience. I don't have, a, you know, it's a different story. But, yeah, I think I have something to share. And, yeah, we'll see. For, for, for now, unfortunately, he's injured. And, uh, yeah, for now, we, are, we don't have that much success, which is not great for me as a coach. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I really hope we, we get better. And, uh, yeah. Do you, do you feel the pressure? Because, you know, as a coach, when your player's not winning, you're like, oh, man, he might fire me next week, right? It's like <laughs> I mean, I'm still playing, so it's not that much of a pressure right now. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> if he fires me, man, maybe I play one more year. <laughs> you know, it's uh, no, no pressure for me. I, I feel pretty confident about uh, myself and uh, that I will not be suffering uh, without a job <laughs> eventually. And, and now you almost have a hidden partner. But now you got an 18-year-old hidden part. You got some young legs to practice again, so it kind of yeah, helps you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when uh, we were practicing for different surfaces, it was a it was a problem because I had to play with him, wow. <laughs> and I didn't really want to. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to practice uh, obviously my own uh, training session, and then uh, to go and hit with him, which <laughs> was uh, yeah, that was tough. That was tough. One week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, I appreciate you taking time to be with us. Um, consummate professional. I, I really, guys who are 18-year careers on tour, love the game, continue to grow the sport. Believe it or not, your YouTube channel is actually really important to the sport because we need more media in tennis, not less, yeah, right? I, so, I know, I know, it's you, true. It's true. So, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you for taking the time to come Thank on the you. show. Thank you.